20 is where we are. Three things this morning. I want to give you the same question that Jesus gave the people on the Temple Mount. I want to give you a warning, and then I want to talk to you about a widow. So you got a question, a warning, and a widow. Three simple little stories, but with great depths of truth. Let's pray. Father, it is with great joy we come to the scriptures again. Having been filled now with the, the promise of, a, of fellowship with you through the death of a substitute, way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and then Cain and Abel, and then, of course, the Passover lamb for the family, and then the, the goat that was slain and the living goat the, that was sent into the wilderness on behalf of a whole nation, and then Jesus himself who would take away the sins of the world. You have covered all the bases, and we're so grateful that you have saved us by grace through faith alone, not by works, not by church attendance or prayers or rituals. There's nothing we can offer you. All we can do is receive eternal life by putting our faith, our trust, our confidence in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection alone. So we're grateful now to come to this teaching in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus is just a matter of a day or so from his crucifixion. His last public teaching on the Temple Mount. We know that this is vital, and so we want to take in every word, Father. Teach us. Teach us and humble us and bring it, give us power to obey that you might be delighted and pleased. In Jesus' name, amen. So, these are the last uh, days of Jesus, last moments on the, te- on the teaching at the Temple Mount. He has been confronted with scribes, Pharisees, and elders. I don't have time to get into it, but if you go back to Luke chapter 20, verse 1, the chief priests, the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him. Now, can you all picture, are you with me? Jesus is up on the temple mount. He's outside the temple. He's not inside the temple, but he's up on the mount. Um, Most likely, he's in the court of women, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. And the scribes, the elders, and the chief priests are confronting Jesus. They're, they're attacking him, trying to get him out of favor with the public or with Rome. They just want to get rid of Jesus. They're, they're so angry, the Bible says they want to lay hands on him to kill him, but they can't because the crowd loves Jesus so much. Now, these same scribes, elders, and chief priests, these same ones. Now, this is probably like Tuesday or Wednesday, and Jesus dies Thursday afternoon at twilight. I believe in a Thursday crucifixion, so I'll just hold to that. So we're talking just a few days. These scribes, chief priests and and, um, elders, are the ones confronting Jesus, and they want to do anything they can to destroy him. They make a deal with Judas Iscariot so that Jesus might be betrayed. They might know where Jesus is hiding out. You know that every night of his last week here on earth, he leaves Jerusalem. He goes outside the city to the Mount of Olives. Why? Because he cannot get arrested prematurely. He's escaping all the enemies in the city. He has to leave the city every night and come in the next day. And so um, it's all set up. It's going to happen just as God planned. These same uh, three groups, scribes, chief priests, and elders, are at the cross. They want him dead, and now they show up at the cross in Matthew chapter 27, verse 41. And then in the book of Acts, they have to deal with his resurrection and all of the apostles who are preaching, this Jesus whom you crucified is risen from the dead and he's not going away ever. All right, so this is very dramatic. So they're done confronting Jesus. He has won every argument. And you want to know what I would do if I was Jesus? I would stick it to him. 
but I'm not Jesus, and I'm glad for that. You know what Jesus does here in Luke chapter 20, verse 41 through 44? He tries to win them to salvation one last time. Here he is only really 24 hours maybe from his death. And he is trying to win his enemies to salvation. He wants them to believe him. He wants them to trust him for eternal life. Do you realize what Jesus is doing on his last 24 hours on earth? He is preaching the gospel. I love it. He cares about people. And he's like, okay, you guys, I'm going to give you one last chance. Here it is. Luke chapter 20. Follow along as we cover verse 41. And he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, all of these religious people in all of Israel would say the Messiah has to be a son of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, God says to David, David, you want to build me a physical house, a temple? You can't. You're a man of war. I am going to build you a house, David. I'm not going to build you a house with sticks and windows and a roof. I'm going to build you a genealogy where one of your descendants will sit on the throne of, of your, your kingdom forever. That's the Messiah. So there in 2 Samuel, God said, the Messiah must be the son of David, must be a descendant. Great-grandson, great-great-grandson, great-great-great-grandson. Some boy coming out of David is going to sit on the throne of Israel, not just for four years or eight years or 20 years, but forever and forever. Hallelujah. All right, you with me? Everybody knows this. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, El Gabor. So this baby coming is, his name is El Gabor, Mighty God. Yes. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of whom his government shall know no end, and of the increase of his government, he will sit on the throne of David forever. So everybody knows the Messiah is the son of David. So so Jesus says to the crowd, Do you not all agree that the Messiah must be the son of David? And everybody's like, we all know that that's a basic Bible theology. Now he says in verse 42, now David himself said in the book of Psalms, and he's going to quote Psalm 110. Now Psalm 110 is only seven verses. It is the most quoted Psalm in the Bible. Out of the seven verses, the the Psalm is quoted or alluded to over 42 verses times. It is like, if you don't know those seven verses, we got a problem. Actually, my whole message this morning was Psalm 110. There's five shocking prophecies in those seven verses. I switched because I, that wasn't Luke's intent and I'm going to have to do that a different day. But here's what Jesus does. He just quotes the first verse and he says this, David himself said in the book, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Listen, no father is ever going to call their son Lord. The father, the oldest, the father is the chief of the family. He's the patriarch. No father would ever call their son Lord. But here in Psalm 110, David is recording a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. The entire psalm has nothing to do with David. David is eavesdropping on the Father and the Son up in the heavenlies. And the the Spirit of God tells David what to write. 
God the Father is Yahweh. It says, Yahweh said, or God the Father said to my Lord, Adoni, Adonai, but Adoni means my Lord. It's a possession. David is saying, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is saying to my Messiah. The Father, Yahweh, is speaking to my God, which means they're distinct. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, David is saying this. My son, my great-great-great-grandson is going to sit on the throne forever, but he's also my God. How can David's son, who's not even born yet, or great-great-grandson, how can David's descendant at the same time be David's God, be David's sovereign? What's the answer? Jesus is going to be born of a virgin. He is going to be fully God and fully man in one person. Jesus Christ is going to be fully God, so he is David's sovereign Lord, and yet he's also David's descendant. He's going to be fully man. Now, so Jesus, he tells this crowd, even in the scriptures that you believe and hold to, in Psalm 110, David says that his descendant that's going to sit on the throne is also his Messiah in God. How can that be? And everybody would have to say, the only way would be through a virgin birth. The only way that God, God would have to come down and take upon himself human flesh. And Jesus is saying, I am he. Will you trust me? Do you see how powerful that question is? He is leaving these religious leaders with no options. Either they're going to turn to Jesus in faith and say, you are the Messiah who is God come in the flesh. By the way, Isaiah 9, 6 says that the baby's name is Mighty God. That's divine status. Zechariah 2.10, God says, And the Lord will come into Jerusalem himself. God will come and dwell in Jerusalem. That's a definite divine status. Zechariah 9.9, divine status. Like, you, I could take you throughout the whole Bible. God promised he himself was coming to earth to rescue us. In Isaiah, God says, I alone am your redeemer. There is no other. God says, I, God, am your savior. You have no other savior. Like God has told them over and over, he is coming to earth. And then David says, it's going to be my son of the flesh, but my God at the same time. So I'm going to ask you, how does that impact you? Do you believe that Jesus is not only some great teacher of history past. He's not just some wise man that had quite a following. He started a religious movement like, uh, like Buddha did and like Hare Krishna and, and all the, and Vishnu and, and uh, Russell back in the 80, 1800s when he started the Jehovah's Witness. Is Jesus just the leader of a big religious movement? Or is Jesus God who has come in the flesh? And we would all say, he is God. He is our Lord, who is also born in flesh. Now, since that's true, what does that do for us? Do you realize that if he is, and since he is your God and Savior, he gets all of your loyalty, all of your allegiance, all of your energy, everything is his. Do you agree? Like, there's nothing that we have that is ours. It all belongs to him. He alone is the God. He alone is the Savior. There is no other. You know, when I was talking to my high school students, that was one of my first things I had to tell them. Jesus is God come in human flesh. 
And if that's true, then how should that impact your life? I mean, he is God. He, he created everything out of nothing. He controls my future. He controls my present. He, he's given me everything. Like, he is my God. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before him. God is a jealous God. He will not have your affections split between him and something in the world. He's not going to have your affections split between you and your possessions, you and this world, its entertainments and its pleasures, you and your family. So many times our family becomes God and, and it becomes an idol. But God is God. He alone gives and takes. He gives and entrusts and then he takes it away whenever he wants. And who are we to argue? So Jesus is leaving the crowd with this last word and he says, I am God, I am David's descendant, but I am also divine. If you believe me, you have eternal life. If you don't, you will turn me over to the Romans. I'll be crucified in 24 hours. So let's go on, verse 45. That's the question. Now I have a warning for you. Then, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes. Now, where are the scribes, chief priests, and elders? They're all in the crowd. And Jesus says, okay, audience, beware of these people. Beware of them. Beware of these scribes. There's a warning. We are not to be like them. Here's what Jesus says. Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. Oh, I'm so thankful I don't have to wear a robe. I, yeah, isn't that, you know, but... Because I don't want to distinguish myself from, I could have a long robe with a heavy vestment for October, a fall leaves on it or something with a collar. And, and, and I would be saying, I am more important than you, basically. I mean, I don't know if that's, maybe that's not how everybody that wears a robe feels. But, but the idea of a robe is it distinguishes from everybody else. It does. Why would a choir wear robes? So they distinguish themselves from everybody else, and then they all look alike, and so they all match together. And, and the priests wore robes because they were different than the rest of the... They wore the certain robes in the temple things. But these people, these scribes, wore long robes to draw attention, to, to show them, we are a scribe. We have a much higher position than you. You guys are nobody. We're somebodies. What do you call that? Pride. They loved, they loved wearing long robes. They loved going about so everybody could see them. They loved appearances. They loved greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, there he goes, most honorable rabbi, teacher, um, so-and-so, such-and-such with so many degrees. And he went and he went to this yeshiva and he went there. And oh, yes, they had like 18, 20 names behind themselves. They loved greetings in the marketplace to show how prominent and glorious they are. Isn't that tragic? Man just loves to be the center of everything. And so they wanted the attention. They loved the greetings in the marketplaces. They loved the best seats in the synagogue. Put me right up front. I want everybody to see that I'm here today. You know, just put me up front. I want everybody to know. And they loved the best places in the feast as well. They don't want like the farthest from the food line. They want the closest to the food line. They just love the best seats in the triclinium where everybody knew this is where the most honored guest sits. They were just always vying for position and vying for self. Isn't that what got us into trouble in the first place? The devil said to Eve, Eve, you can't be content with what God gave you. God, he's not a good God. He gave you the fruit of every tree, of the, of every tree in the garden. 
You can eat of every tree as much as you want for as long as you want. What a terrible God. He kept one thing from you. He doesn't want you eating one fruit that he knows you really need. You need this to be satisfied and he is not good. So you need to go outside of the bounds and take what he has not given. And that has been our problem ever since. We want significance. We want to be, we want to be the best. And, the, and it's tragic. And so Jesus calls him out. Verse 47. These scribes, they devour widows' houses. They go to a widow. Their spouse has died. They take advantage of them. They're like, here, we'll take care of your property. We'll take care of that house from now on. That pitiful little garden, you can't keep it up. We'll take care of it for you. Just turn it over to us. And pretty soon, they owned all of the widows' houses and the properties, and they were, they were just building up for themselves great wealth and greed. And then finally, for a pretense, they make long prayers. They thought the longer the prayer, the more spiritual they were. It's kind of like sermons. The longer the sermon, the more spiritual I might be. I apologize for long sermons. I'm, I'm not trying to, to do it to be spiritual, but that they would pray and for a pretense make long prayers so that everybody heard and you'd have to sit there for half an hour as they rattled on about all sorts of things. And then at the end, he says, these will receive greater condemnation. Listen, the principle is this. The greater the privilege, the greater the judgment. The greater the privilege, the greater the judgment. These were teachers in Israel, and if they taught the word of God, the whole nation would have fallen on their face in repentance. Jeremiah 23 says, if they truly taught the word of God properly, people would have fallen on their faces in ashes and sackcloth, repenting of their sin, of saying, you're right, we are an idolatrous, wicked people, and our only hope is a savior, a substitute on our behalf, a Messiah. But they didn't. And because of that, these teachers are going to receive a greater judgment. When it comes to standing before Jesus, I'm going to be held to a far higher account with greater judgment than others. Because the Lord is going to say, well, now listen, Brian, that's not what I said in Luke 20. You made something up. You didn't tell it like it was. Do you know how scary that is? It is a fearful thing to preach God's word. He has a particular meaning and intention for every text, and the goal of our church is to find the right meaning and then apply it in numerous ways. Well, he's telling us there's no place for arrogance. There's no place for pride. We don't look down on others. We don't despise others. We love one another. We build up one another for the glory of God. And then last, Luke 21. And he looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So now the teaching's done. Jesus it, the Bible, other Gospels say that he's sitting in one area of the court of women, and there are 13 bell-shaped brass trumpets. And the trumpets fed into a box, and you would take, they didn't have paper currency, and they didn't have checks or credit cards, but they did have a lot of change. And so they would take their coins out, bring them in a bag, 
they would dump them into the bell of the horn or the trumpet, and it would go down and go clink, 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 and it would come into a box, clunk, 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 and you knew that person gave a lot because of the, the, the amount of noise that it made and the length of time it took for those coins to spiral down. Man, that was a good giver. So now Jesus, and there was 13 of these treasury boxes in the court of women. It's the Feast of Passover. So there's like 200,000 people, and they all want to give offerings because these offerings go for the temple worship. They're going to go to put a new coat of paint on the temple, or they're going to do something big and grand. And so people are given their thousands of dollars and tens of thousands of dollars. Clank, clank, clank. Oh, look at that man. Oh, he's carrying a big, heavy bag. He's got two servants to carry that bag. He is giving, a, they're going to be able to do like a big fresco on the backside of the temple, or it's going to be really awesome. There's going to be some new, new agriculture. Some, they're going to do landscaping with that kind of money. And all this money is going into the boxes, and everybody's ooing and eyeing. And now nobody knows or sees or cares about this poor widow. She is carrying with her, probably in a little napkin or a handkerchief, two mites. Two mites. Um, two mites is one sixty-fourth of a denarius, which is a day's wage. If you work a 10-hour day, this equates to eight minutes of work. That's it. Eight minutes of work uh, on a 10-hour day. That's what two mites is worth. It is worth nothing. Like you, it's, the rabbis said it's the least you can give to God. You can't give him one mite. You've got to give him at least two or more. And, and so here she is. Nobody knows her name. Nobody knows who she is. Some poor widow. She takes the two mites. She slips them in a trumpet, and they slide down with not a sound. But Jesus is watching. And he points her out. And for eternity, this woman is mortalized for her act of giving. In verse 3, so he said, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. What? Two cents is worth more than $1,000? How could this woman give more? You couldn't buy a tulip bulb with two mites. You couldn't even buy part of a can of paint. You couldn't, you, couldn't, you couldn't do anything with those two mites. They're so tiny. They're so insignificant. And the Lord says, she gave more than, than all the rest? How does God come up with these things? He says in verse 4, For all these things, or for all these, all these people, for all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. All of these people that put in a thousand shekels, five hundred shekels, a hundred shekels, fifty shekels, they walked away having given a substantial amount to the Lord. But when they're walking away, they're thinking, well, I have no problem. I have lots of bread. I have lots of animals in the backyard. I've got plenty of food for, uh, for uh, Y2K experiences and uh, COVID lockdowns. And I've got plenty of food for that tribulation time that's coming. And um, and." By the way, that $50, you know, I won't even feel it. I can still make my chariot payment. And the, and the ox still have some grass. All right? They gave a lot, but, but they gave out of their abundance. Jesus says this woman gave 
all her livelihood. This is, listen, everybody, this is all she had. This is 100%. This wasn't 10% a tithe, which is an Old Testament economy, not New Testament principle. She gave all she had. She puts that in there and she walks away going, okay, Lord, you've called me to trust you. You take care of the orphans and the widows, and I now have nothing. I have no bread. I have no money for bread. I have nothing. I, you'll have to provide for me by nighttime because I'll need a morsel of bread to keep going. She's absolutely trusting God. She has nothing. And the Lord says, she by far has given far more than all of those who gave out of the abundance. What is that lesson for us? You know, sometimes we get so legalistic about giving, don't we? We think, well, the Old Testament tithed. Oh, so glad it's a tithe. That's 10%. God forbid I want to give 20. No, 10%, that's manageable. That gives me 90. And I can live on 90%. God gets his 10. I get my 90. What a deal. Man. Then we write out, we're counting every nickel and penny. Well, what's 10% of, you know, whatever. Okay, good. I'm glad I got that off my chest. Now, what do I do with the rest of my money? Here's the basic principle. Everybody, God owns everything. He owns it all. He owns our savings account, our retirement funds. He owns our property. He owns our possessions, our vehicles. He owns our family. He, he owns everything. And he can call it back whenever he wants. And he has given us some principles to live by, and they're not percentages. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I think beginning around verse 6 or so, God says, you give purposefully. Do you know what it means to give with purpose? It means intentional. Intentional. Years ago, somebody said to me, um, Brian, I sure would love to come to faith, but I'm not. I'm not going to come to faith. I like the music people and the preaching is okay, but, um, but I'm not going to come. I'm like, oh, what, what's going on? And they're like, well, I, your, your church has a characteristic of, being, of giving in the offering, and I don't want to have to give. They're like, if I go to this other church, I can just put in 20 bucks whenever I want. And I was like, oh, well, we don't ever make people give. Um, that's not a requirement. Come to church and you must give. We, like, we don't beg for money or ask for money. God's people give it, but they give it purposefully. We, we give, Melissa and I, we give intentionally. We, we think about it ahead of time. We agree, and then we give. And so it's not an afterthought like, oh, no, the offering. We better do something here. I got five bucks. No, I don't. I got two. No, I don't even have a $2 bill. Um, you know, it's, but we're like, you know what? We're going to give, and this is, God has blessed us with all of this. We want to give, so we're going to give. We're going to give with purpose. We give, the Bible says, not grudgingly. There's no inward pressure. Like, I don't give grudgingly like, oh, I could use that for a brand new, I don't know, what do I want? I don't even know what I want. Um, a brand new Bible. This Bible, um, if I buy a new one, it's $1,000, this exact edition. But I got, I got another one. There. Thank you. Um, it's really nice. But, you know, so the idea is not grudgingly. You don't ever give to the Lord thinking, oh, I have to give. I got inward pressure. I don't want to feel guilty for giving, so I'm just going to give. Uh, the, then it says in 2 Corinthians 9, you don't give out of necessity. You don't give out of necessity. That's outward pressure. 
You don't give like, everybody, we need you all to dig deep today because we got a, we got a big light bill and we got to get that thing paid. So you all dig deep. No, deeper. No, deeper. Oh, we want to do this. We need money for this. Dig really deep. Like, no, you don't give grudgingly. You don't give out of necessity. You give cheerfully. You give out of gratitude. You say, Lord, you've given me so much. And I want to give back to you because you're the greatest giver. You gave us your son. And you freely, Romans 8 says, not only gave us your son, but you've freely given us all things with him. And so I don't want to be stingy in my giving. If you can use these resources to promote the gospel to, so the lost could be reached and the church could be built up, praise God. Do you see, it's, it's, it's not a percent, it's the heart. It's the heart behind it. God is not asking all of us to give 100% like the widow did. Otherwise, we would have nothing like, well, that would that'd be kind of weird. If we all gave everything that we had, then we wouldn't have anything left, you know, and I mean, God would provide, but I mean, that's, I think, also, that's, that's not the intent of the text. The issue is sacrificial giving. I'm just going to end with this. 2 Samuel 24, 24. You could write it down. 2 Samuel 24, 24. David has counted the army. King David has counted the Israelite army. And God said, King, you never count the army. Because then you're going to trust your army and not me. And then when you win a battle, you're going to get the credit. And I don't want you getting any credit because that's my job. I do the battles here. So don't count the army. So David says, I'm going to count the army. And Joab comes and says, King, I'm I'm your general. I, I, I can't really tell the king what to do, but don't count the army. And David says, I'm counting the army. And he counts the army. And God sends an angel of death over Jerusalem and he the angel's got a sword and he's just killing people with the plague and people are dying left and right and david's like whoops i sinned and so then god says to david i'm going to give you three options you get punishment a punishment b or punishment c and david says i have sinned against you lord you pick the punishment i'm not going to pick it you pick it And so then God says, I want you, David, to go to Aruna's threshing floor in Jerusalem, which is where the temple is going to stand. We'll be up there in just uh, two, two and a half, three weeks. We'll be right in Jerusalem at the Temple Mount. This is where it took place. David goes up to Aruna's threshing floor. There's oxen and threshing wood things. And David says, Aruna, God has told me I need to build an altar on this threshing floor, your threshing floor. I want to buy your property. And Aruna says, oh, David, oh, king, if God has told you to put an altar here and he needs this property, I will give you everything. I'll give you the land. You can have the oxen for, for animal sacrifice, and you can have the wood of all, all of my implements, and you can break that up and use it for fire. For free, for free, I give it to you. And David says, I am paying for it because I cannot offer God that which costs me nothing. That's the principle. David says, I cannot offer God burnt offerings which cost me nothing. There's going to be some pain and sacrifice when we truly give like God gives. Did he not feel the pain when he gave his own son to die for us? Well, that's the point, and that's the principle. Now, this is the last public teaching. Well, we're going to get to the future events. But here on the Temple Mount, he ends with teaching on money, generosity, sacrificial giving. So what do we have? We have 
Jesus is God, fully God, fully man. He deserves all of our obedience and allegiance and loyalty. We shall have no other gods but him. That's the first part of the text. The second part, beware of the scribes. They love ostentation, looks. They like the best places. They like to be number one. Jesus says, if we want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, we must be the slave of all. Jesus turns that on its head. And then last, we just need to be generous, sacrificial givers. That's it. And, um, and now he's almost done with uh, this teaching. He's now going to move over to the Mount of Olives. And tonight, we'll talk about future events. Israel, Jerusalem's destruction, and then all the end-time events that Jesus gives. Right before he dies, he's going to lay out the plan of history for things to come. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your word. Like every text that Jesus speaks, everything he does is masterful. It cuts right to the heart. Oh, we, we must know and never forget that Jesus is fully God, the creator of heaven and earth. He is the one who has no, uh, no previous existence. He has always existed. He, he, is, he was not created. He is the uncreated one. He is eternal in the past and eternal in the future. He is the only God, and we're so thankful um, that he also took upon himself the flesh of men, that he would walk fully as fully human to pay for our sin. And then, Father, I think of these scribes that are warned. I bet they were slinking and slouching in the crowd when Jesus points them out and says, do not be like them. Do, beware of these scribes. Help us, Father, from being puffed up, from thinking too much of ourselves, from wanting any kind of recognition, any kind of show, any kind of appearance, any kind of pride is ultimately what, what all sin is about. Satan had great pride in his heart when he sought to overthrow you in the heavenlies. Adam and Eve, um, even in their sin, all sin is rooted at independence. We want to be king. We want to be God of our own kingdom like these scribes and Pharisees. So help us to be humble, to serve others, to be a slave of others. And then help us to be generous in our giving. Help us to really um, support and see the work of ministry being done. We know you don't need anything, but we want to be part of what you're doing. And so thank you that you've given us resources not only to live, but also to help those and to uh, be a part of ministry so Jesus might be glorified. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, um, we're going to close with the Lord's Prayer, and, uh, or sorry, the Lord's Table. And I've, I've asked Wyatt to do this part um, with my 9 o'clock and then doing the music.